0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: This is Jonathan Kay, Canadian editor for Quillette.com. In recent months, academics, activists, and journalists have put a spotlight on an unsettling aspect of the otherwise welcome trend toward the increased acceptance of transgender individuals in Western societies. As many clinicians have noted, there has been a sharp uptick in the diagnosis of gender dysphoria the clinical term that describes transgenderism, among children. This is controversial because many trans activists suspect that concerns expressed over this issue are really just a veiled form of transphobia. One journalist who has covered this extensively is New York-based writer Jesse Single, whose summer cover story in The Atlantic magazine, entitled When Children Say They're Transgender, is still being talked about. In mid-December, I spoke with Jesse at the library of the Yale Club in New York City. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Uh, Jesse, it's been a few months now since your cover story appeared in Atlantic magazine. You, as you predicted, got a lot of praise and a a lot of criticism because the issue is controversial. Recently, the New York Times got involved in it. Could you describe a little bit about how that happened?
2: Recently, there was a column by Andrea Chu, who's a, a trans woman and an academic. The column was mostly about her decision to get so-called bottom surgery and how she, unlike many trans people, she did not think this would necessarily make her that much happier or improve her quality of life or alleviate uh, suicidality. She said she had grappled with, but, you know, she was asserting her right to, to have this surgery anyway, and it was for that reason, a controversial column among a lot of people, including a lot of the trans community. It touched on my work in that she basically claimed that I had to take down a position of of wanting to stand in trans people's way uh, against getting hormones or surgery if a doctor thought that they wouldn't help. In my column, my article in The Atlantic, I had laid out explicitly, or rather explicitly, the opposite position. I had explained how the protocol of so-called informed consent was important. And informed consent is simply the idea that a trans person, once informed of the potential benefits and potential risks of a given procedure, whether hormones or surgery, they should have the final say about whether to you know, take that medical treatment. So, it was a frustrating example of the opinions I laid out in the article and the positions I laid on the article just sort of being flipped 180 as supposed proof of the of the article's bigotry or wrongheadedness. And you know this happened in, in a number of different publications. And I I should be clear that there were plenty of good faith critiques too. But I've just found that it's hard to sort of discuss some of these issues on the merits or based on the actual arguments different people are making. It's just a a, a very sort of Heated area for understandable reasons, and yeah it, it's made for, for an interesting discussion
1: If I remember the New York Times article correctly, it was almost sort of a drive by. Did you contact New York Times editors after the fact?:
2: Yeah, I sent them a quick email just explaining well, it wasn't that quick it was, it was longer than it needed to be, but just you know politely explaining that my position was flipped on its head hundred eighty degrees, and that I, I viewed it as a misrepresentation to their credit. They let me write a letter to the editor and they published it quickly. it just My article was, I think, 13,000 words long, and there are a million good faith critiques one could make of it. One could argue we emphasize the wrong things or put the different stories in the wrong order. It's just as a writer, you know, what can you do if if someone just uh, attributes to you an opinion that you don't hold?
1: One of the frustrations I know that a lot of people have about writing about this issue is the, the fact that even when you're trying to compartmentalize concerns about, for instance, whether it's, it's children or whether it's certain kinds of treatment or whatnot, it sometimes does get lumped in as transphobia or as an attack on the, the existence of transgender people. Uh, has that been a theme of some of the criticism you've received?
2: So again, I just want to emphasize there's plenty of good faith critiques too. And, and you know, there's a reason where, where the less than good faith critiques have been unfortunately more prominent. I'll get specific. In this article, I talked to a bunch of clinicians. I talked to a bunch of kids and their parents. I you know, went around the country, uh, met a bunch of different people. Some of them happily transitioned. Some of them so-called the sisters or people who had gender dysphoria but then went away. Some of them detransitioners. And I just sort of reported on the controversy going on within the medical establishment. And there is one. You know, I had named clinicians with very good reputations explaining why they thought there was a controversy and why some of them thought – these issues weren't being dealt with in a critical enough way. So, if if that's transphobia, if the argument that, you know, kids looking at medical procedures that could have permanent effects should sh- there should be some sort of process that they should have mental health support and that there should be a real diagnostic process there, that is viewed in some quarters as a transphobic opinion. And I don't really know what to do with that other than to say that I don't think it is, and that groups like the American Psychological Association and WPATH, which is sort of the main professional organization for clinicians who work with trans people and gender nonconforming people, it's right there in the guidelines that, that kids and adolescents are a little bit different and that while well, gender and gender identity isn't easy for anybody, it's more complicated for people who have a lot of development in front of them.
1: When you talk about guidelines, uh, one of the the terms that you sometimes hear is affirmative care, the idea of, of affirmation of the stated identity as the guide for how you should deal with a particular patient. Do you see that affirmation model as being in conflict with some of the authorities you just cited?
2: No, I think those authorities all agree that affirming care is best. The problem is affirming care is a pretty vague concept and has different definitions to different people. So, for instance, in my article, I quoted Diane Aronsaft, who is nobody's idea of a transphobe, as saying she was frustrated that some people view affirming care um, with youth as rubber stamping whatever they want. You say you're trans, let's get you on hormones. In her view, and again, this is someone who is very well-regarded, by most trans people and by most trans activists, in her view, affirming care in a youth context is a little bit more complicated than that. It involves a little bit more exploration, a little bit more understanding where the kid is coming from and why they want what they want. At the end of the day, I trust that Diane Aronsaft is not going to let a kid who has gender dysphoria suffer needlessly. She's not going to cut them off from the care they need. But if she believes that this sort of exploration is important, I don't understand why that's controversial. I I also, frankly, in any other context with a kid showing up in distress in a medical or mental health context, we would say, give them the time and space to, in a compassionate way, explore who they are and what they want. This does not mean insert unnecessarily protracted timelines for kids who have legitimate gender dysphoria before getting them access to hormones. It means taking a little bit of time to understand who the kid is. And the clinicians I quoted in my story, including Aaron Saft, many of them seem to do a really brilliant job of that. They really seem to care about these kids and want to help them do what's best for them, which a lot of the time will involve physical interventions. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes you get to know a kid and they come to the conclusion they don't want to go on hormones or they're not trans or both. That doesn't mean that's the norm. It doesn't mean that anyone else isn't really trans. It means that people are complicated. And stripping away the complexity of adolescent development, the complexity of gender identity, the complexity of gender dysphoria, will only hurt people in the long run. That's something I've been trying to emphasize over and over and over, ever since I first wrote about the subject. It does not help anybody, least of all trans people, to act like this stuff is simple, or that exploration in itself is harmful.
1: You mentioned that there, there were some good faith and astute critiques of your article that, that you'd encountered. Could you describe some of them? Sure.
2: The article starts with the story of a, of a young woman who thought she was trans for a period. It appeared she had gender dysphoria. She was never diagnosed with it formally. And then I uh, realized she wasn't. She might be what you would call a desister. One of the critiques was that we simply started with a story that's probably not the norm, because a lot of people say desistent isn't that common. Another related critique is like, why would you start with someone who ends up deciding they're not trans at a time when so many trans people, kids and adults alike, lack access to care? It sort of gives the wrong message as though you're leading with what you think is the most common or important outcome. That's a category of critique I think is totally fair. And all I can really say is these decisions were agonized over internally. And When you
1: say internally, you mean Atlantic Magazine?
2: Yeah. I mean, a a piece like that, there's so many different drafts and reads and edits that go into it. And I think at the end of the day, I just disagree that it was improper to put that story first. And I think I noted this uh, in just a Medium post I wrote, but anything you move down or move up will require moving something else down. And there's probably no order that wouldn't have annoyed somebody. Now, if someone says it takes a few thousand words to get to all the stuff about how trans people have been, you know, kept from the care they need and the historical difficulties they've had. That's true and that that's sort of one of the any given structure is going to have certain drawbacks, but all that stuff is there. There's a 750 word section, that's the length of a newspaper column on its own, about how trans people have been denied access to care and how that's changing for the better, but how there are still major problems. There's moving quotes from, you know, a woman who's currently a um a clinician in the Bay Area who's herself trans about you know, 10 years ago, she went to an endocrinologist. She knew she was trans and she was just denied access to hormones for no good reason. So, those, those stories are all in the piece if you look for them. But in a 13,000-word piece, like, you're not going to be able to present everything right at the top.
1: Do you think articles like yours are moving the needle on the discussion? And I don't mean to suggest that you're an advocate for any particular clinical approach, but I mean, perhaps broadening the, the spectrum of views that people are are exposed to? Or, or do you think there is still something of a taboo, at least in progressive circles, about exploring these issues?
2: I would like to think it's moving the needle a little. I, I, I can say that One clinician in particular who was in my article said that he or she has been hearing from parents regularly since the article ran. This person, and I want to be as vague as possible, I don't want to sort of reintroduce them into the conflict, but this person has now gotten a steady stream of parents saying, you know, I I just want to go someone who will actually treat my kid like the complicated little person they are. Like, a little person sounds condescending, but you know what I mean. In some cases, these are not so little people, they're 14 or 15, but there's a real unmet demand for comprehensive care on this issue. And and the problem is, given the way social media works, and given the way Google works, and given the way activism sometimes works, if you're a parent on the left, you're likely to find yourself in pretty unscientific online settings where you hear things like desistence is a myth. No one would bring up detransition except you know, because of some underlying bigotry, stuff like that. If you're a parent on the right, I think you're likely to find yourself in similarly unscientific places where, for example, people ignore that we don't have a lot of evidence on things like, you know, long-term hormones outcomes. The best evidence we have suggests for people with severe persistent gender dysphoria, hormones make a world of difference. They really help people feel better. And I think it's, it's unfortunately become so politicized that people just don't treat this like they would any other... Medical or mental health issue with with just a little bit of nuance, a little bit of understanding that a developing person can be very different at age fifteen and thirteen or seventeen and fifteen. So all of this is a long-winded way of saying it. I'm seeing some signs. Their conversations improving, but there was a pretty fierce backlash to it. And you mentioned that I got some praise for it. That praise was mostly either private, and I you know I got a fair amount, or from conservative outlets. And and it I don't think it should be the case that only conservative outlets view comprehensive evaluations and mental health care is a good thing. And I also think some of the conservative outlets that praised me had you know, ulterior motives, or not even ulterior motives, explicit motives where they just don't want kids to transition. Before
1: we move on to other subjects, I, I wanted to ask you just a very practical question for, for parents who are listening. And I know you obviously don't present yourself as a clinician, you're a journalist, but from your layperson's perspective, what are the, the resources people would want to start with for a a neutral take on this. What are the websites that you found responsible and, and neutral in this respect?
2: This this sucks, but I, I there's very few like I could recommend in good faith. I would say this is incredibly self serving, but I I would say read my article I would because it, that article, it isn't just me. I'm quoting a lot of the most famous clinicians in the field. Read their words. See what they have to say. Read the stuff they've written. There's also one paper in particular that I found really helpful. It's called, I think, Affirmative Care Expanding the Model. So it's a technically an academic paper, but anyone can read it. It's by two of the clinicians I profiled, Scott Leibowitz, Laura Edwards-Leeper, and a third co-author whose name I unfortunately forget. This paper explains exactly why while this concept of affirming care is important, it's a little bit underspecified what it means exactly. And they really nicely and eloquently, in a way lay people can understand, explain how as clinicians, simply saying they should be affirming isn't always enough. Sometimes it's a little bit more complicated than that. Sometimes if a 13-year-old feels strongly about something, you do need to challenge them a little bit. And there's a way to challenge them while still affirming you value who they are and that you're not denying sort of deeply held aspects of their identity. I think that's something people get wrong over and over. And that was why when I met with Diane Aaron's she really focused on that idea. Being an affirming provider does not mean rubber stamping whatever a kid wants. Kids are kids. Teenagers are teenagers. So the problem is I I don't think a resource like, you know, the typical um, traditional gay rights, Outlets are bad. I just, I think they're one-sided in that they view desistance and detransition as subjects that only bigots would talk about because trans, you know, genuinely transphobic people have wielded those concepts. So if you go to Glad's website, you're not going to find a lot on the what is a real possibility that a kid with gender dysphoria at one moment might not feel the same way in a few years. And the evidence on this is a little bit. Thin, but all the evidence we do have suggests that's true. And S-
1: Suggest, just to be specific, suggest what is true.
2: The available evidence suggests that even, not just gender nonconforming behavior, not just like, you know, a little kid putting on a dress, that a boy, he may or may not be gender dysphoric. The evidence we have suggests that a significant proportion of kids who have real gender dysphoria, down the line it goes away. Now, there's some evidence that the more severe the dysphoria is, the more strongly they feel like the other natal sex, the other gender, the more likely it is that the dysphoria will stick around. But we we don't really have enough data to know what predicts which kids will persist and which will desist. So at the end of the day, you've got to give kids a little bit of time to explore, and you should not shame them or insist to them they're wrong. But that is like a whole side of the story that in left of center spaces is not being... Like it's being told, I've gotten to write about it. But whenever you mention it, there is this really fierce backlash that in my view is disproportionate to the actual threat this idea poses. I don't think this idea poses much of a threat in the proper context. And the problem is if you go to websites like Glad, you're not going to hear much about it. A little bit of the story is left out.
1: You wrote the story in early 2018. It was published in June in the July-August print edition, although I think it first appeared online in June. The story has developed since then in scientific circles. Between that time and and now, we're talking December 2018, a Brown University professor, Dr. Lisa Littman, published a peer-reviewed article on a phenomenon known as ROGD, Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, which I'm not sure if it's a term you like to use, but it generally is used to describe a situation where children, especially girls, present as trans often, as the parents describe it without any sort of warning whatsoever. It's, and some fear it's a result of social contagion and not a result of, of genuine gender dysphoria. What effect do you think the publication of that article and the predictable backlash against it has had on the discussion in this field and and how would that article have have affected your own work if that peer reviewed piece had been available to you at the time you were writing your own article for the Atlantic?
2: Uh, one thing I will say is that as I read her paper um over and over and over, the specific example she gave of what of what parents had noticed was stuff I had come across in my reporting no one can claim that this just doesn't happen. That is just a myth. I, you know, my story had a couple, I interviewed a couple of girls where this thing happened and it doesn't help anyone to pretend it doesn't happen or that only deeply transphobic parents would have, you know, questions about kids who sort of seem to develop gender dysphoria out of nowhere. There are legitimate methodological critiques of her study, but she did not present her study as some random sample of parents, and when
1: you say methodological critiques, I think the most apt would be that the place where she went looking for for data uh, were online f- forums where parents who were skeptical of, of their their children's presented gender dysphoria congregated. Yep. So there was there was definitely a, a selection bias. Some would say
2: absolutely. Yeah. Just just as there's selection bias in all sorts of research that that trans activists accept. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to present sort of pro and anti-trans parents as equivalent. So I would I'm even as I say that, I, I don't think all the parents in Lippmann's story were anti-trans. By certain measures, they were perfectly they had similarly pro-trans beliefs as a lot of liberals. But the point is you can't, you know, if you take a sample of parents who belong to a trans support group and treat that as good research and and don't harp on those the problem, the selection bias there. Or ignore the fact that maybe the fact that they're part of this community could affect their views on it and then say of this other community that's more skeptical of childhood transition well we have to throw out that research that that's you know that's bullshit because they don't believe that's it was exploratory research she was taking a phenomenon that some parents believe it happened and tried to find out more about it i don't think she or anyone presented it as this grand representative survey of what's going on and and i think the uh, the worst possible uh, takeaway from a study like that would be for parents to assume that because their kid's gender dysphoria seems sudden, they're not really trans or they shouldn't really transition. Because there are, as some critics of the study have pointed out, there are situations where it can seem to come on suddenly, but then it's just there. It's permanent. And the research, this is more another area of limited research, but we've known for a while that there are some cases where a kid gets trauma, traumatized and then develops um, a different gender identity.
1: And some have speculated that they're they're seeking to disassociate from their former self. Uh, and this is, a, some would say, a strategy for for doing that.
2: Yeah. And this comes from, again, Diane Ehrensaft, who is, a, you know, I don't want to speak for, you can't speak for the whole trans community, but no one anywhere has accused Diane Aronzaft of transphobia. In both of her books, she mentions these well-known cases. They're pretty anecdotal, but Other clinicians I've spoken with, too, have mentioned them. Um, You know, uh, a little boy will lose his mom in a car crash tragically, and then he will suddenly say he's a girl. And the clinicians I've spoken with said that, yes, this happens. Sometimes it's actually permanent. Sometimes, like, this is just their new identity. Other times it goes away in time. Again, you you need to be aware of these different possibilities and hold them in your head at the same time as you help kids explore who they are. I just don't want people to to read the Lippman study and then say, oh, well, my kid has RGD. They couldn't possibly be trans. The clinicians I respect the most who do this work are able to keep all these different possibilities in their head at the same time as they're getting to know a kid. They're able to say there's a little bit of culture stuff going on. There's a little bit of social stuff going on. There appears to be this little biological kernel here. There's a reason gender dysphoria has always been treated as a so-called biopsychosocial condition. It is this complicated thing, fascinating, interesting thing with many different factors, and you need to keep different possibilities in your head. So the critique of Littman's study that it could cause some parents to sort of hone in on this one possibility of ROGD – is true. A parent shouldn't do that. But I don't think that means Littman shouldn't do that research. Any, any research could be misinterpreted by bad or ignorant actors for a million reasons. So I, I study, I think, is useful. And the stuff she found was stuff I had found in my reporting. And that, you know, one of my clinicians told me, a trans kid himself told me that social influence was at play. Should we just ignore all these voices? And any journalist who just dips a pinky toe into this world and talks to clinicians, we'll find out this stuff does happen. We don't know how often it happens. We shouldn't obviously shouldn't use it as an excuse to prevent genuinely dysphoric kids from transitioning or to sort of police kids in unfair, cruel ways, but it happens. And I think what I'm most trying to push back against is this idea that we should sort of suppress things that appear to be true, but that could be used for bad purposes. There's a way to present these ideas in context so that reasonable people we'll understand what's going on but not jump to unwarranted conclusions.
1: Have you spoken in the last few months to Dr. Lisa Littman to compare experiences?
2: I don't think I have in the last few months. I at different points I was going back and forth with her because, you know, when I was doing my reporting on the story ROG came up. I I forget. I think it just didn't end up in the piece because it just it seemed too early.
1: She took a different strategy. She I haven't heard much from her since she published her report and she's an academic. You, by contrast, have engaged to a certain extent with your critics. Is, is is that a conscious strategy you adopted?
2: My stra- I haven't had a strategy, and I think that's been one of the problems. Is I haven't figured out a good way to do it because it's such a complicated mix of internet trolls and people with genuine concerns. And social media warps everything so badly, and I, I've spent too much time on Twitter. I think that in instances, as was the case with the Times and Jezebel, where someone printed something that was simply false about what I wrote, I've gotten better at responding to those just quickly and assertively and saying, I didn't say that. I'm not going to respond to something I didn't say, but I don't, I don't have an overall strategy and I'm not sure what the strategy should be. Littman was in a different position than me because she is in many ways more vulnerable because, you know, as a scholar, you're facing certain institutional pressures. And I don't think she was probably told by her department not to respond because if you work for a big institution.
1: As Brown University in this case.
2: Yeah. That's often what, if, you know, if you work at a school or a magazine and there's a big controversy afoot, they'll probably tell you to keep quiet. But,
1: uh, so, after all this, are you going to stick with the subject in your journalism, or is this it? Because I know you've written about uh, many other things. Have you sort of exhausted the subject for now, and, and you've moved on to other things?
2: I haven't decided. I, I There's like an annoying, nudgy, contrarian part of me that to the extent that some of the backlash hasn't reflected what I've actually written. I'm always going to be someone who's going to want to continue going down roads that people say I shouldn't and and to keep writing about controversial stuff. I will say that there's like, the whole reason that there's controversy surrounding me is because I was given like really uh, opportunities I'm lucky to have. I mean, these are stories in New York Magazine and The Atlantic. I can't really complain. I do think that if you write about this in a certain way, some people will try to ruin your career and reputation. And that's happened with me. And it's just something you need to keep in mind as you're trying to balance like what to write about.
1: Well, this isn't speculative. When you mention New York Magazine, you wrote a piece a few years ago about Dr. Ken Zucker, who was thrown under the bus by a clinic in Toronto on, on very dubious pretexts. And despite the fact no Canadian media outlet came to his defense, you wrote a rather definitive piece in an American outlet, New York Magazine, which essentially catalyzed the movement to vindicate him. And since that time, he's received an enormous legal cash settlement from uh, the clinic that ousted him. But for a few years, Dr. Zucker went through hell. And and is, is he someone you've spoken to since then? Or do you regard his story as a cautionary tale for your own career?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've I spoken to him a little bit off uh, just via email and stuff. I've never met him. I don't think his reputation has been rehabilitated. I think there's still, you know, his name is still has a bit of a satanic tinge to him among certain people. And you need to sort of separate, like, the reasons they were upset with him fundamentally have to do with, like, a long history of, of trans and gender nonconforming people being treated terribly. You need to recognize that. In the same way, like, I, the example I always use is. I'm Jewish. Some older Jews, particularly sort of closer to the Holocaust generation, like will buy into really, in my view, out there anti-conspiracy theories about people trying to destroy Israel.
1: This is the Uncle Leo Seinfeld theory. <laughs> yes. of the, it's, there's a Everyone's certain,
2: an anti-Semite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm Jewish
1: too. And there's a caricature of this in the Jewish community. Yeah. Okay.
2: And the, so the response isn't Uncle Leo, you're crazy. What are you doing? It's I mean, it's a little bit that, but it's also like I understand why people are vigilant about this. So in the Zucker case, it's a community that really has been wronged in various ways, asserting their right to be treated better. The problem was I looked into the available evidence as best as I could. And really looking into it, I couldn't find one example of him actually doing the thing he was accused of doing, which is conversion therapy. Nobody could present an example of a kid going into that clinic saying, I'm a trans boy, I'm a trans girl and them trying to force him to the other box. I'm sure some of the critiques of, you know, him being too conservative might be valid, of him maybe delaying transition might be valid, but I say might because no one ever really looked into this in a rigorous way. It was a, what everyone now agrees was a pretty disastrous process, and there's a reason the hospital partially apologized for it and, and gave him a pretty big cash settlement. So, I guess... I've struggled with what I'm supposed to do differently in a situation like that, where my reporting leads me in a different direction than sort of what you're supposed to think or, or what you're told is true, and and there's not much I can do about that because years later, I've definitely gotten um, you know a few adult accounts of people who thought they didn't have great experiences with Zucker for this or that reason, but that's not unusual for for a psychiatrist and that's not the same as saying he did conversion therapy so I guess at the end of the day I just need to report what I find and I did not find any evidence to support that the worst allegations against him were true and the single most specific allegation that he called a kid a hairy little vermin was explicitly false and the hospital acknowledged that so it was just a a tricky thing to report about.
1: Jesse Single, thank you very much for appearing on the Quillette podcast.
2: Thank you for having me John.